How does the public move right when policy moves left? This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Public opinion tends to move in the opposite direction of policy, a well-established regularity across democracies known as thermostatic politics. When military, health, or welfare spending goes up, Americans want less spending. When spending goes down, they want more. That's frustrating to policymakers, but may represent democracy in action. But how does the public learn that policy is changing, enabling their adjustment? And how does the polarized public still provide a clear signal in response to policy? This week, I talked to Stuart Soroka of the UCLA and Christopher Vlesian of the University of Texas, the key developers and testers of the thermostatic model. Their new Cambridge book, Information and Democracy, points to the key role of the mass media in informing the public and driving opinion change. They find that television and newspaper coverage does usually provide a good cumulative signal of which way national policy is heading. And the public as a whole, not just the most informed, receive that signal. In most issue areas, they respond by adjusting their preferences, saying enough when spending rises too much for their taste, or too little when spending falls. The media, left, right, and center, covers policy accurately when it changes, despite all of our protestations and the public pays enough attention to notice and adjust. But the result is that they tend to think each side goes too far, moving policy in their preferred ideological direction. It may not be the failures of democratic politics that produce an ungrateful, seemingly vindictive public, but actually its successes. The public learns what policymakers are doing, but that means less people demanding more of that and more demanding less. Here's our conversation. Stuart, why don't you start us off with a summary uh, of the book? What were the big findings and takeaways? So the purpose of representative democracy is to produce public policy that matches public preferences. And that requires not just that governments are responsive to publics, but also that publics are responsive to government actions. Citizens in the aggregate, at least, need to have some basic sense for what governments are doing so they can hold governments accountable and also so they can have informed preferences worth representing in the first place. So democracy depends on a minimally informed citizenry. And while it's easy to point to specific instances of failure, our past work and work by others finds evidence of responsive publics. Governments increase spending in defense, for instance, and public preferences for more or less defense spending change. Not always, but on average over decades in large salient policy domains like defense and welfare and health. And the question we're going into this book with is how does this happen? Most of us don't have any direct experience with policy. It seems very likely then, indeed probable, that we learn this information from mass media. So accurate media are central to the functioning of modern representative democracy. And the purpose of this book is to try to capture what we refer to as the media policy signal to identify the information that media are conveying, accurate or otherwise, about policy. And then to examine the degree to which that mediated information accurate and otherwise, fuels public responsiveness. In in some, I think I'd say drawing on roughly four decades of public opinion, budgetary policy, and content analyses of media coverage, the book offers what we believe is the first, or, or, or at least the largest, uh, one of the largest tests of the role of mass media in modern representative democracy. So this has been a long collaboration for, for you all. So uh, Chris, talk about how uh, this builds on your, your past uh, work and, and how the, this book came to be. Well, yeah, it goes back quite far, back to 2001. We were both at Nuffield College in Oxford in the UK. Um, 
And uh, I don't know, it was about a month or two in after I arrived there. He was already there as postdoc. We started uh, started a, a collaboration on uh, looking at uh, opinion policy relationships, building um, uh, building at least in part on what what I'd done in the United States. Uh, Stuart was intrigued, was wondering about comparative uh, application, so we took it to the UK. Uh, later on, took it to Canada. And uh, which ultimately um, culminated in the book uh, Degrees of Democracy. Um, and then we kept going with that in a whole variety of directions. And we, we during the whole, it's in the book, but um, Degrees of Democracy, um, we, uh, we, we featured the media as a, as a mechanism, but we really didn't do anything with it empirically. And it was always, you know, it sort of had to be part of the story, um, but we weren't sure really how to do it. And we thought about it. We talked about it. We decided to start in with the economy because that's something we could kind of, we figured we could get our heads around um, and our measures around. <laughs> and that worked pretty well. And then after a little while, we uh, decided to let's, let's try it with policy. <laughs> and we we were able to find a way to measure media coverage of, of uh, defense spending. That went pretty well. And then uh, next thing you know, we were doing it in a whole bunch of different spending domains. Um, and that's that that <laughs> that takes us up to the present in this book. So, Stuart, you start with these two examples of defense spending uh, and the Bush tax cuts. Maybe take us uh, through those, and I guess maybe add one from a Democratic president, so we get a sense of what the dynamics look like. Yeah, I mean, in our first chapter, we use those two examples to set up a kind of mystery that requires solving. We wrote a mystery novel. I think. There, there is a uh, you know there's a large body of work focused on how uninformed the public is, and that work is partly correct. But there are also moments, and I think we would say many moments, in which aggregate public preferences respond sensibly to policy change, and that's the mystery. So here are two examples: a mystery that is given how uninformed many people believe the public is. So here are two examples: going into 1980, the American public supports a lot more defense spending. Reagan makes large increases to defense spending. And over the next several years, public preferences adjust downwards. That is, Reagan increases defense spending. The public responds thermostatically, adjusting our preferences for more spending downwards. We want a lot. He gives us a lot. We adjust. Years later, in the early 2000s, a large proportion of Americans believe taxes are too high. Bush implements tax cuts. And Americans' beliefs adjust downwards. Not all Americans, mind you. Bush's tax cuts primarily help the rich and to a lesser extent the middle class. And it's these citizens who show the largest subsequent decrease in the belief that taxes are too high. So those are two examples of our mystery, but we can also look, for instance, at public preferences for health spending in response to Obamacare, where we see a similar kind of what we would call, uh, based on Chris's prior work, a kind of thermostatic dynamic. That's the kind of mystery that we're setting up at the beginning at the beginning of the book. On the one hand, there's lots of work suggesting that individual members of the public are ignorant about lots of different policies. But at the same time, in the aggregate, the public sometimes responds quite sensibly to policy change. How do they do this? <laughs> the spoiler alert is uh, our partly media <laughs> So, so Chris, what was the sort of assumed role of the media in the thermostatic model, uh, and has has your view of the media's role in it changed at all uh, from from this book? And maybe give us a sense of if there's anything out there that's other potential mechanisms. Do people have direct experience with with policy? Uh, do uh, they uh, hear 
party messages in campaigns or direct from politicians, uh, or is the media sort of still the central mechanism driving this? Well, we, we assumed uh, that, that media play a role, right? Mass media play a role, and they could partly um, it could, could partly relate to these other alternative mechanisms that you, you mentioned, um, including campaign messages and the like, which can find their way into news coverage, right? Um, this this sort of direct experience with policy is is a slightly different um, a possibility, and I, I, could, I could circle back to that if you'd like, um, because that is the subject of a lot of research, as you know, right, on positive feedback, which is something different to thermostatic feedback, right, which is a, a form of negative feedback. Um, I think the most interesting finding, and I'd love to hear what Stuart thinks about this, too. Uh, we, we didn't get a chance to talk about uh about this in advance, but it, to me at least, uh, but I also think to him is is the form of media influence. Media is informing the public, but it's not as if the public is updating um, based on reporting solely of current changes in policy. Um, it's more along the lines of uh, the, the public adjusting to this accumulation of signals they're getting about policy changes over time. And so it's uh, it's I think we were both expecting it to be more change focused. You know, there's they have their preferences. It's fully informed at the prior point in time. Uh, we get a change and that change is quickly incorporated into uh, change in policy reflected in, in media coverage. And that change in information is quickly incorporated. And that's not ex always what we find and not consistently what we find. And so there's there's a, there's a bit of a. You know, kind of a bit of a um, a lag to this process as it plays out over time. Stuart, without getting us uh, completely lost in the details, uh, give us a sense of how you uh, measured media coverage and in particular uh, your use of what I guess what we now call old media or legacy media, especially newspapers uh, and, and televisions, uh, and why that uh, constitutes still kind of the best measure of the signals that uh, citizens would get. I'll answer the second part first because I think it's pretty straightforward. We, we our analyses go back to 1980, and in order to have an analysis that go that um, that ex extends over that time period, uh, we have to focus on legacy media. So that's not to say that they're the only media, of course. And for the latter, let's say third of our data set, especially there are other media that are going to matter. But for the bulk of the time that we're looking at. What we now call legacy media, television and newspapers, are are just media. That that's why that that's partly why we focus on on those media. Although we have played with social media in in a latter part of the book and in other work as well. Now I'll answer the part about where we, where that all comes from. I mean, we begin by scraping principally from uh, the LexisNexis full text archive all relevant content from seventeen major newspapers and six television stations. For newspapers, that means we capture any story that is even tangentially related to each of the five policy domains we examine, defense, welfare, health, education, and the environment. TV transcripts are archived differently. They're not archived by story, but by the entire transcript. So we actually grab all television content. And then we identify in all of that content, any sentence that refers to spending change in any of those policy domains. We do it uh, initially using what we're calling either a layered or hierarchical dictionary approach. Essentially, we have dictionaries of words that refer to budgets and spending, that refer to policy domains, 
and that refer basically to up or down keywords, up or down signals. And combinations of policy words, budget words, and up or down words pretty reliably identify sentences in mass media, television and newspapers, that suggest policy change in one direction or the other. And then if you count up all those sentences, and uh, let's say by fiscal year, and subtract the number of down sentences from the number of up sentences, you get a representation of what a citizen might learn from media coverage. That is over fiscal year, what was the kind of aggregate signal the media was sending? And we're able to compare those kind of annual up and down signals with the direction and magnitude of actual budgetary change. I'll add that um, you know it's important that we're not talking about a couple sentences here and there in the New York Times and nowhere else. There actually are a lot of sentences on a near weekly basis in U.S. media that signal up or downward change in one policy domain and the other. We're talking about tens of thousands of sentences. So when Chris is talking about the impact of kind of cumulative media coverage over years, what we're talking about is a lot, a lot, a lot of sentences in media coverage that signal upward or downward spend, spending change, enough so that any citizen probably paying even passing attention uh, to mass media is getting at least a trickle of information about what governments are doing in terms of spending in these domains. So, Chris, the nice thing about this is you have objective measures of what what policy is uh, doing, but you also try to uh, look uh, a little bit at uh, whether uh, the media might um, sort of predict changes, maybe cover the policy debate before it happens. Uh, There's been, I guess, recent uh, controversy about whether is it the media coverage of the policy changing or is it the media coverage of the debate whether or not uh, it actually passes. So what, what can you tell us about that? And I guess, what did you learn from looking at each of these policy issue areas individually? Right, it's a good question. Uh, it's something we take very seriously in the book. Um, we might not go as far as uh, you and, and listeners might like, but we're, we're on the case. <laughs> and I'll tell you a bit about that in a bit, a moment. In, in the book, we, we, we do pretty clearly demonstrate, I think, that media follow what policymakers do, so they're not leading. Um, but that analysis is based on, on, on uh, measures of coverage over the entire fiscal year. And so it conceals what is happening during the year. It, that's, it's just not clear. Um, but it is one thing we're exploring, the timing. And it looks like, based on the analyses that we're actually literally in the middle of, um, when, when we have the time to do it, uh, it looks like media is reacting later in the fiscal year to the decisions about spending for the following year. And so it's it's not mostly the things like presidential requests and state of the union addresses or early debates, but it could still be uh, reflective of later debates. But these are basic results um, and mostly mostly um, motivated by a, a desire to unpack causal direction. And so there's a lot more work to be done here, and it's something that we've talked about doing uh, moving forward. About domains, yeah, well, most of what we're seeing here is is we see we see it holds in some domains. Um, I mean, we have to keep in mind that survey organizations only ask questions about domains that the people, you know, tend to care about. <laughs> and and even among, uh, and we focus on a subset of those that we think are particularly salient, and, uh, and that's defense and welfare and health and the environment and education. And we find, you know, pretty nice um, uh, effects of, of policy on media coverage and then in turn on, on, on public preferences in, in three of those domains, defense, welfare, and health, and, but, but not in the other domains. And so this is not a, you know, 
and 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 you got to keep in mind that what we're focusing on here is a pretty high level. You know, we're talking about you know are is spending going up on defense. It's not the details about the spending um, and programs involved, and and the same thing for welfare and health. And so this is a you know there's there's you know this it doesn't hold everywhere. It's not three chairs for for American media or, or public opinion, but but it's better than I think a lot of people expect. Stuart, you use both uh, hand coding from research assistants and um, computerized uh, text analysis, um, and you've kind of uh, let uh, folks see the the details uh, on a website, I believe, uh, media organization by media organization. So uh, tell us uh, what's available and and what people will see in terms of how this uh, content analysis was done. So, I mean, that's right. I spoke about our dictionary coding earlier, but all the dictionaries and results are tested using human coders, and we use crowdsource coding to test the reliability of the dictionaries. We also use the crowdsource coding to fuel machine learning algorithms to see if we get roughly the same results using that kind of supervised machine learning. Uh, and, you know, in the book, we spend two whole chapters, one first developing the dictionary approach, and the second testing that dictionary approach in many different ways, including racing it against machine learning. And in past work with Lindsay Dunn, we've also explored the degree to which we get the same results using just what we're calling this hierarchical dictionary approach versus um, machine learning. And then on the website, mediaaccuracy.net, we provide more detailed results for each of the each individual media outlet uh, by domain, we give kind of accuracy scores and we have long pages there for those who are interested on the methodology behind, uh, behind those scores. Short answer about the relationship between the machine learning versus human coding is that aggregated measures of the media policy signal estimated using either approach are highly correlated. The correlation coefficients in each domain are above 0.8, sometimes above 0.9. We're getting essentially the same signal using these two different approaches, even though these two different approaches start from very different points, right? One is about, you know, capturing sentences that have all of these words in it. The other is about getting humans to code a bunch of sentences and then teaching a machine to replicate that human coding. Now, why is that the case? It, it's the case partly because we, we're relying on highly aggregated measures of the media signal. Both the dictionary and machine learning approaches make lots of errors at the level of individual sentences. That's going to be true in almost any automated coding. There's no systematic difference between one or the other method. Like there's no place where like clearly humans are doing better here and the diction humans in the machine are doing better here and the dictionary is doing better there. They're both making different kinds of essentially, from what we can tell, random errors. What we can say is that both sense both systems are making errors at the level of individual sentences. When we aggregate up sentences, and we're talking about tens of thousands of sentences in each fiscal year, what we get are very, very similar measures using either approach. And real quick on the uh, media differences, uh, listeners can go look at them in, in, in detail in the specific outlets, but uh, it doesn't seem like there was a broad pattern that this was reliant on conservative or liberal leaning uh, media or television versus newspapers uh, or any particular media framing decision. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, in the book, we look, we don't look at individual media outlets very much. We spend a, a very brief amount of time on that. And then on mediaaccuracy.net, what we do is for every single media outlet on every single domain, provide essentially an accuracy coefficient. We show how with both the volume and accuracy of coverage in each domain. And there are, in some cases, uh, dom 
let's say in the defense domain, actually each individual outlet is doing a relatively good job, but there are variations in, in, a good, in how well they're doing. In environment, each outlet's doing a pretty bad job, but there's a little bit of variation in, in how badly they're doing. All right, Chris, um, this seems to be a more uh, redeeming portrait of the media than we usually hear, um, but probably critics of the media will think this is a pretty easy case that they get the direction of spending right. So tell us how responsive you think this is to kind of broader critiques of media framing of policy or overall levels of coverage of policy uh, with, with your analysis. Well, I don't think we disagree with those hypothetical uh, critics. Um, you know, it's not everything we want of the media, um, um, but it's certainly good news. I mean, this information about policy is being conveyed um, pretty accurately, uh, at least in certain domains that the public considers to be important, um, and the public gets that information and uses that information. So I think, again, it's not three cheers for mass media in America, but it, it seems better than we might expect. I mean, maybe most importantly, I mean. We're all political scientists, right? <clears throat> we know that um, we know that you know this. You know that, that that people were you know were and still continue to be surprised by thermostatic response. Tends to be at a pretty highly aggregated level, you know, in a very general level. Um, and you know, we're finding that that response is driven by media coverage, which also is 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 is, is cast at that level. Um, and that's why we studied it that way, right? We're trying to get at a, a public response. Of a particular type, not trying to assess media coverage, you know, generally and in, in all in all of its in all of its ways. Most importantly, I think it's it's it, it potentially um, and seemingly enough to guide politicians um, and then also hold them accountable, at least in a very general way. So since I'm regularly touting this to uh, the, the media itself, though, uh, I, I do regularly get these uh, responses that, no, this is about, you know, the media is falsely covering what Biden is trying to do, or they're overemphasizing the liberal aspects of it, or uh, it's about the debate and the uh, inability of the Democratic members of Congress to get across their messages. So do you see this as responsive to those kinds of um those kinds of, of challenges, or are those just excuses? Well, I think to some degree, right? I mean, are, is, it, is it fully responsive to all of those? No, <laughs> but but you know, I think there's a little gain saying that you know things are happening in uh, in Washington. Uh, policy um, policies are decisions are are, are are happening that that are getting covered, and they're getting covered pretty accurately. And um, that's you know that's. That that seems somewhat contrary to you know uh, to to what to what some of the, some of those hypothetical critics you raised at least um, are are uh, are saying. Um, but you know it's you know and it's it is good news. But again, it's not again it's it's not you know uh, it's not perfect. So Stuart, you also find uh, that the public is responsive uh, in broad terms uh, to this uh, media coverage, um, but. Uh, they're also responsive to some uh, basic economics, things like growth and inequality, um, and uh, they're also responsive to just the party of the president. So tell us kind of how does the media fit into that, and does the party of the president finding cut against a little bit the, the notion that the public is learning about policy itself from the media rather than just kind of reacting negatively overall? Right. I, I mean, we know from past work, our own and many others, that 
public preferences for policy react to economic indicators and the partisanship of government and changes in policy itself. So one of the things we explore in the latter chapters of the book is whether media coverage matters above and beyond those factors. But do media simply convey the state of the economy or the partisanship of government and policy change? If that's the case, then including economic and spending variables in a model of preferences should remove any observed influence of media. That's the context in which we're exploring these other these other influences on public preferences. But of course, media don't perfectly reflect the economy or spending or probably any other real world factor. M media can be and most likely are uh, kind of partly accurate, but also partly flawed or noisy reflection of what's going on around us. And media coverage includes information, as you've just been saying, information about other things as well, either completely irrelevant to policy or relevant, but not necessarily captured by medias of the, uh, by variables rather of, uh, of the economy or government. So to what extent does that information matter? Is it possible for media, for this other information in media to matter above and beyond the factors which we already know matter to public preferences, the economy, and so on? And our analyses in those later chapters suggest that media do, that whatever it is that media are conveying, that information can have a significant impact on preferences above and beyond the party of the president, above and beyond information of uh, the kind of budgetary policy itself, and above and beyond the economy. So, but just so we're clear, the party of the president finding, you know, survives and so shows that the public is not just responding to either policy itself or the media coverage of policy, but they're also just a a turn whenever the party uh, of the president changes. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. There are two ways to, to talk about that, right? One version is uh, the party just responds to whatever the party of the president is, and that's meaningless information. And because it's a Democrat, the, the public swing, uh, the public swings Republican and vice versa. But of course, the party of the president is not meaningless information where policy is concerned. Democratic presidents on average make democratic policies. Republican presidents on average make Republican policies. And so the party of the president is a meaningful cue about the likely direction of spending in a whole bunch of different domains, not a perfectly accurate cue, just like the media are not a perfectly accurate cue, but it's a, it's a meaningful cue. It's not completely irrational for someone to look at the party of the president and think, given this president's partisanship, I suspect that defense spending is going upwards and welfare spending is going downwards, and I'm going to adjust my preferences accordingly. That's not a, that's, that's not a, completely contentless cue. The party of the president is meaningful. Yeah. Can I chime in on that too? Go ahead. Yeah. I think one, one, one of the things that I, um, that we, I think the way we look at that finding is, you know, spending and media coverage of spending matter independently of the party of the president. So that's really, it's really, a um, what we're trying to do in the book by that, with that analysis is to show that, Hey, just in case you were wondering, as a number of people have asked us over the years, um, is this all just about people responding to the people who, you know, the partisanship of the uh, president and, and, and or the Congress? And it's not that. So it's, it's more than that. So, Chris, you also disaggregate the public um, and show that this isn't just the high attentive uh, voters that are uh, responsive. Um, so talk about that finding a little bit and maybe some other disaggregations. I know there you have all been involved in debates over whether this is just about the highest class uh, respondents or about issue publics uh, or whether changes in the media mean 
that these signals are no longer getting getting through. This seems to be a, a pretty powerful signal against that that those kinds of ideas. Yeah, it's great. It's, thank you for the question. It's a lot of uh, a lot of parallelism here, and this this goes back to um, you know the, the Page and Shapiro's classic work on on public opinion. Uh, there are a lot of parallel publics. People respond in similar ways. Um, we find that across um, uh, education information levels, we find that across um, income levels, um, perhaps the most, I think, interesting and striking finding may be the, the parallelism across partisans. Preferences move together. Uh, we see thermostatic response. Uh, that's that's virtually identical. Um, uh, but there are, and, and, and all are responding to the media, although... It, it looks like uh, there are some interesting differences across partisans as well, where the Republicans, um, and to a lesser degree, independents appear to be more responsive to the media signal. Keeping in mind that the media signal doesn't just reflect spending change, right? Even you know it, it, it picks up other stuff, and it looks like Republicans are more responsive to that other stuff, and independents also to some degree. Uh, and so the, the, their preferences are affected not just by spending. Um, as it's mediated, but but by these other things, and this is something that Stuart and I are planning to explore, but haven't started in on just yet. So, Stuart, we've already done the hard work of redeeming the media. Now we have to redeem the U.S. public. That should be easy. So, uh, uh, how, in the, on the one hand, this seems to be good evidence the public can um, can learn uh, from uh, public policy, uh, can accurately uh, tell you what direction it's moving, and uh, can can move against it as, as we would expect. On the other hand, we have uh, some long-time patterns uh, that kind of cut against the, the notion that we have an enlightened uh, public here, um, even in this domain. So even in spending, you know, we ask people about welfare versus spending for the poor, we get very different answers and always have. Uh, we ask people about spending on ind individual items versus spending as a whole. And again, we get pretty different answers and, and always have. So kind of uh, place this evidence within that sort of broader set of regular findings about American public opinion. Right. I mean, I think, I mean, first, regarding the difference in responses to, for instance, questions about welfare versus questions and spending the versus questions about spending on the poor. I mean, there are big level differences there, right? For when we say welfare, preferences for more spending are much lower than when we say spending on the poor. But if we track the, those two questions over time, responses move almost perfectly in parallel. When preferences for welfare spending are moving upwards, so are questions for spending on the poor. And Chris has written a fair bit on the way in which we should be interpreting these questions. They'll be good at showing us over time change. They, they're they kind of ambiguous on the levels front. That is, it's very hard to learn from uh, survey questions, the level of policy that people would prefer. And when you ask about welfare versus spending on the poor, you get some, you get some different levels. But there is meaningful information there. You track that over time and over time change is meaningful. And all of what we're looking at here is about over time change. So given Question wording, given, for instance, asking about spending on welfare versus asking about spending on the poor, what does the overtime change in those survey responses look like relative to policy? It's meaningful. So there are, there are level differences that are a function of question wording, for instance, or, or we could say policy framing. Um, but there also is meaningful overtime change. That's maybe the, the boring methodological answer to your question. Here's a, um, maybe this one is better. Uh, you know, I think that thinking more generally, I think there's one reading of our book 
and indeed of our work in general, that emphasizes a sort of look at democracy working story. Like Chris and I should be showing up to conferences with pom-poms and cheering for functioning representative democracy. And to be clear, I think we both kind of stand by that story. Maybe not the pom-poms part of it, but the general story. There clearly are domains in which governments are held accountable and publics respond sensibly to policy change and policymakers represent public preferences. And all of that is facilitated in part by predominantly accurate media coverage. So there are instances in which media are working and democracy is working and the public is uh, is responding. But, but we tried in all our work to also make clear that this is not the case all the time. This is not a black versus white story. It's a gray one. That there are domains in which things work and domains in which things don't. And in our prior work, we've identified policy domains in which there's no representation and no public responsiveness. And in this book, we find domains in which media coverage barely reflects public policy at all. So, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that our evidence redeems the public in the sense that we're not arguing that the public is always really perfectly informed and that democracy works as a result. But we are arguing that there are salient large policy domains in which there is enough media coverage and enough attention from the public for informed public preferences. And that justifies representative democracy because there are preferences worth uh, representing. And it also makes representative democracy work because governments are held accountable for their policy decisions. That can happen. It can be simultaneously true that there are huge failures in some domains and successes in others. And that's what we find. And Chris, why don't you give your your take on uh, American public uh, opinion as, uh, as as redeeming as well, and maybe answer it in um, the context of uh, alternative measures that we hear about uh, from from uh, Jim Stimson as to the overall kind of levels of liberalism and conservatism of the American public and their responsiveness to policy and the party of the president. In in this case, you all are more disaggregated, so you're actually able to show the public is responding not just to kind of one signal. Uh, but to these individual signals. Right. That's um, been something we've looked in. This has been a recurring theme in, in, in our work um, over a long time now. <laughs> um, that, it, But it's not by assumption entirely, right? I mean, some of the, some of the work I, I did um, back about 15, 16 years, almost 20 years ago now, um, yeah, it does demonstrate, does not make an assumption that people are responding um, issue by issue and the policymakers are responding issue by issue um, but allows for that possibility. So it doesn't assume, as uh, Stimson and a lot of others have, that it's just one big, um, uh, you know, one one big dimension that there can be, you know, that, that it may be that the public notices and has what's going on in welfare, has preferences that are specific to welfare, and policymakers respond to those uh, specific, well, welfare-specific signals. And, and, and empirical analysis suggests, again, there's heterogeneity here. You see a, some on defense, you see specificity, Specificity, you find domain specificity on welfare, you find it again on health, but you don't find it elsewhere. And so even to the extent you're finding uh, thermostatic response um, and representation in those other domains, we're ten we, it tends to be more collective. So it tends to be more like um, Stimson and others have assumed. But that's not the case in the domains, the three domains that not coincidentally are the ones where we find um, media effects um, in, um, in our book, Information and Democracy. Stuart, I know you only have the data that you you have, but place this uh, kind of spending data in in kind of the larger debates that we're having in American politics. There are uh, 
people saying that we've moved completely on from the uh, redistributive dimension to uh, emphasizing the cultural dimension. Uh, Stimson actually finds public opinion moving more liberal on cultural issues. Uh, but then there are other people who say the public is only responding to, <laughs> to cultural uh, issue changes now and not economic policies. So we, we've chosen this, this area of spending. How should we place that in these, in these broader debates? So it's true that our data focus entirely on budgetary policy, that what we're able to speak to are trends in budgetary policy, trends in media coverage of budgetary policy, and trends in public preferences about budgetary policy, essentially. So it's possible for us to find a kind of sensible interaction, let's say, between budgetary policy and public preferences for budgetary policy, fueled by media coverage of budgetary policy. It's possible for all of that to be true and also for there to be other areas in which media can be either misleading or can be focused on something entirely different from budgetary policy and changing public preferences in, in ways that are not captured by our data. What, what we can say is this is the extent to which public preferences for budgetary policy respond to budgetary policy. In that sense, we find evidence that there's a kind of media policy signal that is representative, but we don't argue that it's perfectly representative of policy change. There is noise in there, and part of the noise, even in our signal, is going to be all of the other debate and discussion and framing that comes with any kind of policy change in the U.S. So there can't, and anywhere else for that matter. One of the things to keep in mind um, that it's relative preferences can change for two reasons. One, because policy changes, right? Um, but also because our preferred level of policy changes. And, you know, that's that's part of what you were asking about earlier with things like the economy, right? And inequality. Um, and in defense, we may have, you know, effects of national security threat and the like that, that impact our preferences. And so PSTAR can change over time. And interestingly, going back to my original work, actually, on the thermostatic model back in... Um, in, back in 1995 now, you know, one of the things that, that we uh, have found consistently is this tendency for people's underlying preferences for policy to, for spending to increase over time. And so if spending does not increase by two or 3% in real dollars in the United States, for instance, over time, public preferences are going to go up. Now, if they increase by too much, the preferences are going to go down, right? If they, you know, if they increase by too little, they're going to go up. But if they increase by just the right amount and nothing else happens to change preferences, you know, then they'll remain the, uh, the same as long, again, again, depending on how much is being spent. And so there is a trend here in P-star for spending, not unlike the trends we see in social domains, right? And a thermostatic model, in, you know, can encompass that to the degree you can capture those kinds of you know, those kinds of, that kind of variation in the, what we call P-star, the, the public's underlying preferred level of policy. And that could be done in theory, uh, not only in spending domains, but also non-spending domains. So Chris, and, uh, an objection I'm constantly hearing and trying to explain your work is that uh, this is what uh, Biden promised he would do in the campaign, or, you know, why did the public turn against uh, health spending under Obama? Because he proposed Obamacare during during the campaign. And so I'm trying to constantly tell people that like immigration policy now, it doesn't mean that Biden is counteracting what he said he was going to do in the campaign. It just means he's 
dramatically different than was Trump uh, on on immigration policy. So so talk talk through that. Uh, why what's the logic? What that it doesn't really matter if the uh, if the, the the president or the party in power is kind of overshooting what they said they would do. Why 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 doesn't that matter that much? Well, overshooting does matter, right? Um, that's kind of the whole kind of the point of the, the thermostatic model. I mean, one way, uh, one way to, and I, if I, maybe I'm misunderstanding the question, so, so please don't hesitate following up if I'm misunderstanding. Um, but it, it, um, in one way, we, we 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 see overshooting and undershooting for a whole variety of reasons because because politicians make mistakes, even when to the extent they're trying to trying to uh, trying to represent, say, the average voter. But um, and if we if I'm thinking when I'm thinking about overshooting and undershooting, I'm thinking about the average voter. Um, and so party, not what they promised, because the promises are going to be predicated not just on the average voter. So party control matters. And so Democrats come in and they push policy off to the left. And the average voter is looking and saying, hey, that's too far to the left. And the further they're in, you know, the longer they're in office, the further things go. And that could lead us to, you know, um, uh, to, to, you know, to have time for the change, time for a change instincts after two terms, which we see. Um Pretty, pretty frequently in American politics and can more generally help us account for cost of ruling in other countries. And so party is part of that story. If parties perfectly, if governments perfectly represented the public and so no sort of partisan tendency and no mistakes, right, um, then um, change in public preferences would be entirely due, driven by these P-star shocks that we just talked about, right? Things that cause relative preferences to change that are unrelated to policy, right? So the economy may go up, there may be a shock to national security that may cause us to want more uh, spending. Um, and then and then we'll, you know, if policymakers respond and given the assumption that they do perfectly, if they do it quickly, then we would, you know, adjust our preferences back downward uh, quickly. If they do it more slowly, deliberately, we would, it would take us time to do that. Um, uh, yeah, I think people are comparing um, what Biden is doing versus what they thought Biden would do, rather than uh, comparing uh, what Biden is doing versus what Trump is doing. Uh, and so I think that, that that's part of the issue. But I also I think people don't sort of have a sense that there, there might still be a response to health spending going up. Uh, even if there were some people who wanted health spending to go up before, now those people are satisfied, and now there's going to be a few more people who who want it to go down. Yeah, some people may be thinking maybe thinking it went too far. Right. So, uh, Stuart, the uh, the media uh, we talked about a little bit the media being uh, covering not just the the policies that change, but the the. Uh, the, the policy debates as they are occurring. So we said in the time series, we are confident that they're not kind of anticipating uh, the, the, the change uh, necessarily. Um, but is, is the media still responsible for this broader pattern of kind of undercutting policy when it occurs? Like, you know, the, the debate for Obamacare, Obamacare opinions go down as the public learns more about Obamacare or as the debate goes on further. And then when it's uh, threatened to be repealed, we see the exact same uh, scenario in reverse, uh, that uh, support for repeal is high at the, at the start and then goes down as, as the debate occurs. So kind of fit that into, into the model that, that you all have. Is the media also just kind of informing people more about a policy which 
somehow makes them more against it? Um, is that part of the spending signal? Uh, how does that fit in? I mean, so that can be part of the story. I should say first that, you know, we know from work that just looks at the relationship between opinion and policy, like our past work that leaves media out of it, that that can't be the predominant part of the story, right? Because we do see domains in which the public is responding to policy change as it happens. But at the same time, when we focus on media coverage, in our past work on the economy, the work that Chris and I have done with Dominic Stakula, we see a media that is kind of forward-looking, that media reporting on the economy is partly about what the economy is going to do. And then we see in, in analyses in this book that media reporting on policy change is partly about policy change in the previous fiscal year, partly about policy change in the current fiscal year, and partly about policy change in the, in the, in the upcoming fiscal year. So there is a component, and it varies by outlet and it varies by policy domain, but there is a component of media coverage that is forward-looking, that is talking about what people are saying will happen in policy. And maybe that's about a debate about what the government might do next year, or maybe it's a journalist pontificating about what governments might do next year. It could be any number of things. But there is a component of that media coverage that is about what's going to happen next year. And so to the extent that the public is following that media signal, and to the extent that that signal is forward-looking, it could be that what we have in some domains over time is a public that is responding to policy change that has yet to happen. That's not the predominant relationship, because we see a public that responds to change as it happens overall. But one constraint, one kind of limiting factor in, in that relationship that is the relationship between the public public preferences and current year fiscal change. When constraint may be that part of what's going on with the public is they're responding to change that hasn't happened. But what about the, I guess, the the, the politics, the media coverage of politics rather than policy um, as, as a factor? So the, you know, there, there are some people who would say in current debates, the public is for, you know, child care spending and health spending that the Democrats are, are trying to do. Um, but the issue is that the public is not for political conflict and controversy. Uh, and so if they see that, if they see the, the enactment scenario, it's going to look bad, even if they, they like those, those components. Do you think that's, that's a part of the, the story? Well, there are ways in which that can be. I mean, the kind of one, uh, one version, actually to draw a little bit on your, uh, on uh, one of your prior podcasts, uh, to, with uh, Yana and John, uh, I mean, one version might be that people uh, just stop consuming or are consuming media less because there's just so much uh, argument in media. And as a consequence, we see constrained public responsiveness as a, that is the result of getting less information about, about what policy is doing. Um, but again, the, even as there can be Lots of sources of noise, lots of sources of kind of error in public responsiveness to policy. There still is in large domains a signal getting through. And even within all of that other debate, there still clearly is in defense, for instance, a pretty clear signal about what is going on in defense spending. And so uh, that is a media signal on what is going on in defense spending and public responsiveness accordingly. So both of those things can be going on. That is uh, kind of 
reasoned thermostatic responsiveness and all kinds of other sources of noise. Those things can be going on at the same time. Chris, this seems uh, somewhat inconsistent with the media model that we're usually hearing around polarization um, that's sort of based on this Zoller idea that the parties are giving off different signals and it's partisans on each side who are receiving their party's signals and going to different corners. Um, but you find you know, similar responsiveness across the, the side. So uh, can we reconcile those, those perspectives or how do we still have this ongoing polarization over time? Uh, with this kind of responsiveness? Well, something needs to be revised. <laughs> I mean, but, but I mean, parallelism, you know, is in the data. Um, it's been there. Uh, it's, it, you know, there, there, there may be some divergence across partisans, but it's not, you know, it's not the primary dynamic um, in preferences over time. Um, in addition, as, as I've already discussed, right, there are some differences in media effects across partisan groups. Um, but, you know, thermostatic response is really strikingly similar. Um, and so they're all getting and using the information. Um, so it seems to me that, um, I mean, part of the story, I think, is if you look at, um, and this is, I think, clearer when we look at the, the, the by, um, by newspaper and, and particularly by, by, by uh, network, television network analyses, um, which, which we get into in the book. Um, and also, our, 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 there's a website, right, where we provide this data and um, mediaaccuracy.net. You know, interestingly, you find the signals that people are receiving across different media sources. You take, for instance, MSNBC, CNN, and Fox are strikingly similar, um, at least as regards this kind of information. And so we really, really wouldn't be all that surprised if people just watching one or the other of these um, these networks to get their news, and that still tends to be the plurality winner, right, for news sources on television, that is. They're all going to be getting pretty, you know, pretty similar information. And so, you know, maybe maybe that's, I mean, th that may be a really surprising finding for some. Uh, I, I don't know how, I don't see how, I, mean, I think what, what I see us providing is more, of a challenge to that other work, but also an answer, right, to, you know, the kinds of responsiveness that we've, thermostatic responsiveness that we've demonstrated, you know, in previous work, right, that these signals are really not all that different. If I could add to that briefly, I, I think that, I mean, Chris has highlighted what I think is a really interesting finding, uh, and that is that when we look at accuracy scores, let's say, in different domains, uh, across television networks, we often find the highly accurate scores for both and like equally accurate scores for both MSNBC and Fox News. Now, they clearly are not saying the same things about policy all the time, but they are sending a very similar signal about spending. So somehow through all of the editorializing in amongst all of that editorializing on those stations, there is a, there are sentences about whether spending is going upwards or downwards. And over the course of a fiscal year, those sentences are roughly in line with whether spending is going upwards or downwards. It's possible to watch Fox News or MSNBC and get roughly the same signal about spending. And that fuels the kind of parallel thermostatic responsiveness that we see in this and in other work. 
But of course, that's not the whole, that's not all of the story about Fox News and MSNBC, because around all of those other, all of those sentences about spending, there's all kinds of other commentary that quite clearly is in very different directions. So we're getting in each of those state, uh, on each of those channels, and on probably in any outlet, a combination of accurate information about what policy is doing, and then all kinds of other information. Some of what we're some of what we're getting is an accurate signal that is producing reason thermostatic responsiveness, and some of what we're getting is other stuff, and that other stuff could be useful or, or it could be nonsense. This isn't just an American pattern, um, but of course the U.S. system has some uh, unique uh, particularities, especially this very strong kind of two-party system. So, what can uh, the comparative research on this add to uh, our understanding of what's going on in the U.S. Uh, and how unique? it is uh, globally. I think in some ways, there isn't anything unique about what we observe in the US. As in, we expect that media are important to thermostatic responsiveness, almost regardless of the system. We, we, so long as we have a sufficiently free media, like a media that is free to report on things, uh, then we'll, we should see media coverage being really integral to public responsiveness to policy, and that should be true in other countries as well. So we've looked at thermostatic responsiveness in other countries. We haven't looked at media coverage of policy in those other countries, but I think our expectation would be where there is strong public responsiveness to policy. We think that is probably partly fueled by accurate media coverage and capturing that media coverage and exploring accuracy is totally something that could be done across other countries. And we would expect roughly the same result. To, to the extent that there are differences in, uh, between the American system and other systems, I think on the first, uh, on one hand, we've already talked about the party of president as a kind of useful cue about the direction that policy is going in. And of course, as we move to systems in which there are more parties or in which power is shared, the partisanship of government is a less useful cue to where policy is going. That may put more pressure on the public and on media to produce a kind of signal that is that sufficiently representative of policy so that there can be uh, kind of informed thermostatic responsiveness. That might be one difference. A source of complication in the U.S. is that it is a federal system. And so there are some domains in, in which, most domains aside from defense, um, in, in which, you know, part of the policy being made is at the state or even at the local level. And in countries with more centralized policymaking, public responsiveness should be easier and actually media reporting of what's going on in policy should be easier. In the U.S., it may be particularly once we get to a domain like education, for instance, that part of the reason why we see limited but constrained public responsiveness and limited accuracy in media coverage is that we're only focused on, in our work, that is, on federal spending on education. But part of what media might be doing and part of what the public might be doing as well is responding to some kind of combination of federal spending and state level spending and local spending. And that's one regard in which the US system is, you know, relatively complex. So on the one hand, partisanship makes the makes responsiveness in the US maybe a little bit easier. Federalism makes responsiveness in the US a little bit harder. 
So, Chris, your uh, story might be an answer to this uh, question people have about why we have this competitive party system where we don't seem to have either party uh, being able to gain uh, a, a permanent uh, governing uh, majority. Uh, on the other hand, you sort of imply that if a uh, governing uh, party did not overshoot, um, uh, that, that maybe they would be able to kind of maintain uh, their their support. Um, so why why are people so mad? Uh, especially given that the overall patterns seem to be spending does go up a little bit beyond inflation over time. Uh, it's going more into uh, things like health uh, and less into things like defense that people seem to want. Uh, and yet people are mad, even though the political system is giving them these compromises over spending that they desire. Not everybody's happy. <laughs> I'll just say put it this way, not everybody's mad, um, but not everybody's happy. Um, it's to me it's 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 unclear the the um the focus here. I mean is it is it um is it social media we're seeing? Is it um is it reporting, you know, um of of more left wing papers and right wing papers that are picking up on audiences which are either really, really happy or really, really unhappy. Uh, it's not entirely clear to me. And so um, I think that is part of the story and that may be aided in, by social media. Um, and so it, it may not be so much that social media is, is causing the public to be different, although there's evidence that that may be the case. But it certainly conveys a difference to us, right? Then um, it, it, and, you know, the people in the middle, those voting voters, you know, they're, you know, they're not the ones showing up at Trump rallies. Right. They're not the ones taking to Twitter and and, um, and Facebook. But I guess what about the other side? Because you, you have uh, there certainly are constant surveys where people say that the, the government isn't doing what they want. They have low uh, support for it. Um, and yet, of course, there is the alternative direction that you all have also shown that the policy does respond to public preferences uh, over time. So what, why don't people notice that? I think people partly do notice that. I think there are these caricatures of the people who are entirely caught up in in uh, partisan arguing on Facebook or people who are completely aggravated at that the government isn't doing what they want the government to do. But uh, like, oh, let me paint a picture that I think is much more accurate. It's perfectly reasonable for someone to think, I'm not going to go on Facebook anymore because there's just too much craziness going on on Facebook. And I just can't withstand that kind of partisan debate. And I'm, I'm pretty aggravated about, uh, about Biden's immigration policy because he hasn't done as much as I wanted him to do on immigration. But I, I what he did do, at least I support, I just wish he did more. So I'm aggravated at him about at, at how limited his response was on immigration. But I support what he did do. And I wish that he did more. And that's a perfectly reasonable position. That is, being simultaneously being aggravated about politics, being upset that the government didn't do as much as you wanted them to do, and also recognizing what the government has done, and that that's like part ways there. So imagine that that is the that is your the kind of information that you're getting over several years. Biden is getting a little bit closer to you on immigration, and you're adjusting how much more you want him to do over time accordingly. I, I think that's a I, I think that's maybe most people, right, that we're, we would like the government to do something, they get partway there, we adjust, 
That's thermostatic responsiveness and simultaneously aggravation about the government not doing exactly what we want. Those two things can coexist. So what's next for you all? Uh, what's uh, book number three going to look like? Uh, what are the big uh, remaining holes in the thermostatic uh, model or the, uh, the, the places where it can be extended to explain new things? We leave a decade between books, so we, we, we need to let that percolate a little longer. But, I mean, uh, w- one of the things we're thinking about doing now, and actually trying, I should say, trying to do right now, is to try to um, frame these results and make these results a little more kind of public-facing, a little more outward-looking. Because we, we started in on this project trying to explain thermostatic responsiveness and a very kind of pointy-headed political science way, because that's kind of our jam. But along the way, we ended up with these measures of media accuracy that speak to you know, the degree to which media are fulfilling their goal in representative democracy and are relevant for communities interested in misinformation and disinformation and media accuracy generally right now. And also, these are findings that are kind of actionable for journalists and editors and also for media consumers. Matt, to be honest, I mean, you anticipated a lot of what we're already doing in your questions and we've already touched on, I think, two of the main areas that we're working on now. One is the media reflect kind of um, paper uh, entitled Media Reflect, which focuses on um, whether the, uh, you could tell from the title, whether the, whether the media are, are actually sort of affecting policy and also the public are, are reflecting policy and the public and um, builds a little bit on what we do in, in later chapters in the book, but um, but I think much more explicitly uh, and also using information available at different points of the uh, fiscal year. And that's the, the, the conclusion so far, at least, is it's mostly media reflect. Um, also, the partisan differences, and this is something we really haven't started in on yet, but it's something that we're really keen to and are hoping to later in the year because it's fascinating to us that you find uh, much more media reliance among Republican voters and to a lesser degree independents than you do Democrats. And it'd also be useful to see how that connects up with different kinds of uh, sources um, and different kinds of information. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, you should check out our previous episodes. Do Americans implicitly trust government despite our public anger? Does the public respond to threats to democracy? Inflation hurts presidents, and it's not the media's fault. The future of the Biden agenda in Congress, and how the media economy drives local news. Thanks to Stuart Soroka and Christopher Legend for joining me. Please check out their new book, Information and Democracy, and then listen in next time.